So I just want to begin by saying that I wasn't expecting to speak this Shabbos. And it's not my way to stand before any of you without having prepared myself adequately. And so I apologize from the beginning. These thoughts are just uh, naked and raw. I want to just begin by acknowledging that in the world at large, beyond these walls, there's something called a football game that will be played <laughs> this weekend. And not saying who I'm rooting for or that there's any relationship between the Super Bowl and the Parsha at all, any level. But I do know there was once a football player who was quite good, and his name was Bo Jackson. And as a kid, I remember a huge marketing campaign to let us know that Bo knows. Something about Bo knowing something. Never knew exactly what he knew. Didn't know how he knew it or if I could know it too. But somehow Bo knew. There was like a knowing in Bo. Almost like a law. Bo's law. I begin with that because I want you to remember a word. I want you to remember Bo. So if that helps you, take it with you. It happens to be the word that begins tomorrow morning's Torah reading and is the third of the parshiot, the third portion of the book of Exodus, and it, it has in it the culmination of all the plagues, all the makot, and at the end of this week's Torah reading, at the end of Bo, what you know is that the Jewish people have survived slavery and are they're leaving. But the word itself, Bo, is very odd. Because Bo means, come to me. Right? Bo means, come to me. We're going to pause for a second. You guys good? It's okay, it's okay, we're good. Sadia, let Ima listen, okay? Listen to, uh, to the rabbi's tavar, okay? It's not long, I promise. This long. Almost done. Promise. The word bo means come to me. doesn't mean go. Lech in Hebrew means go. And of course, bo means come to Pharaoh. And hyper-literally, it would mean that whoever is saying bo is there where he is speaking with the one to whom one is called to meet. Bo Eli means come to me. Bo El Nadav would not make sense. I'd have to be standing with Nadav to say, Bo El Nadav. And so if God in the beginning of this week's portion says, Bo El Paro, come to Pharaoh, and God speaks in the Torah as a person, then that person saying come to Pharaoh must be with Pharaoh. And for the mystics of the tradition, the Zohar, and then after the Zohar, the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, named Rav Nachman of Breslev, the great Hasidic master, the mystical genius. Rav Nachman of Breslev hears in these three words, Bo El Paro, or just Bo knows, a radical assertion that God was with Pharaoh in the house of Pharaoh. And that were Moses to become the great Moses, the one who would lead the people out of Egypt out of bondage, out of the dark place, 
Moses would have to learn the secret of being able to enter Pharaoh's home again after having left. And Rav Nachman goes even further. Rav Nachman of Breslov says that in these three words, come to Pharaoh, Bo el paro, come to Pharaoh, Bo knows. There is a knowing in seeking out God even in the house of the despotic evil Pharaoh. Rav Nachman reads it as a cosmology. He reads the whole Kabbalistic worldview. And here, hold on to your seats for just two minutes. I'll give you a quick two-minute overview of this Kabbalistic universe. In the Kabbalistic universe, God does not create the world with words. God creates the world with subtraction. God removes God's self and makes room for the world. The world is born in the Kabbalistic worldview inside of the divine. And in order for there to be a place where God is not, because were God in that place, the world could not exist. God's light would be overwhelmingly intense. God is constricting God's light, doing what is known as tzim tzum. Can you all say that word? Tzim. And one more time. Tzim. Now when you do tzim tzum, when you're tzim tzuming, when you remove your presence as it were, the Kabbalah then says that there is an empty space where there used to be God, now there is emptiness. And it is into that empty void that the world is then introduced. First subtraction and then addition. First absence and then presence. First a hiding of the light and then a return of the light. This is known in Kabbalah as the Chalal Panui, the empty space. And here Rav Nachman says, the empty space holds a paradox. Because if it were truly empty, then there would be a place where God isn't, and that can't be. But if God is there, then the world can't be. And so Rav Nachman says, that is the place of paradox. The Mobius strip of the Kabbalistic mind that refuses to be ironed out. God's presence is absent, but not really. God is hiding in full view as world, as other, as everything. And for Rav Nachman, the work of the Kabbalist, and I would say all of us, is to walk into Pharaoh's house and say, oh, God is here too. I can't imagine a more difficult evolutionary path. I can't imagine a more lofty spiritual aspiration. I can't imagine a more difficult and almost impossible path to travail. On a week where we commemorated on Monday the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, I sat with 52 rabbis and lay people as we Bo El Parod in Montgomery, Alabama we had come down together to bear witness to the atrocities of white supremacy to bear witness as Jews, as clergy, as humans to the banality of evil to stand underneath the, the awesome display of all of those humans 
all of the African Americans and people of color in this country have been lynched only because they were people of color. And as we wove together the prayers of what our leader in that morning was presenting to us, the prayers and the stories of liberation from Auschwitz together with the museum and the reality and the horrors. One could not help but feel that you were in the Halal Panui. You were in the empty space. The vacuum that swallows up the questions of how could we? How might we? How do we still? That in this fathomless, bottomless pit of despair, as we walked by each and every story that told why a particular person had been lynched, oh, this, this free black man had deigned to curse to a white person and had been lynched for cursing. Or this person who had looked the wrong way at a white woman. Or these children who were too loud. I stood amidst the immensity of absolute radical silence. And just as philosophers like Adorno after the Holocaust said, there can be no poetry after Auschwitz, there can be no words after Auschwitz, I stood there thinking there are no words for what I'm witnessing. Just a numb feeling of how could it be? How could human eyes look at the beauty of another human being and see subhuman? Rav Nachman writes, this great Hasidic master writes, that the only response to the emptiness of the void, the only response to the paradox of God's presence and non-presence all at once, the only response, and he quotes here the Talmud that tells a story of Rabbi Akiva, the great Talmudic master who was burned at the stake by the Romans. And upon seeing this vision, Moses, in a dreamlike sequence in the Talmud says, this great Rabbi Akiva, this great man who would be greater than me in Torah, what is his end? And when he saw the end of Rabbi Akiva, a martyr on a stake, Moses screamed to God, Zu Torah vezu is this Torah and is this the reward of those who study Torah? Zu Torah, this is Torah and this is its reward? And the Talmud records that in this mythical story, God responds to Akiva, Shtok, Sh, Kach Allah, Lefanai. And for generations, until Rav Nachman, the reading of that story is that God silences Moses' plea for justice. That God says, Shtok, be quiet. You can't understand my thoughts. And Rav Nachman says, no, don't read it that way. Don't read it as God responding to Moses and saying, how dare you question my justice. But God in a softer tone saying, if you will only enter into silence, shtok, shh, in silence you might know the paradox of my presence even 
in my absence. And at that moment, you think when you're reading Rav Nachman Breslev, what Bo knows is that when you enter evil, there's only silence there. But Rav Nachman then finishes this way, and this is the way we'll finish tonight. He says there's yet a greater realization in presence, absence, absence, presence. It's Nigun song. He says, Moshe and his silence and the silence of those who can't understand is replaced by a melody that pieces together some semblance of meaning. On the last day of our trip, this past Tuesday, Reverend Eleanor, who was with me, was me and Rabbi Miravera and representing Ramamu with Reverend Eleanor Harrison Bregman. And Reverend Eleanor had kind of made an arrangement to meet with someone who lives in Montgomery. Her name was April, and she knew another person here. It was a whole thing. How did they connect? It was wild. And we walked over on Tuesday morning, the day after we'd been at the museum, and we sat in the living room with April and her two delicious, amazing little boys. One was five, named Jeremiah, and a younger one who was three, called Justice. And April's husband had been born in Montgomery, his parents were in Montgomery. Montgomery, of course, the place of the great bus boycott in Rosa Parks and all the heroism that was happening there. Martin Luther King, of course, and the bombing of Martin Luther King's house. And, and so April knew the whole landscape. And so April gave us a whole rundown of what was going on in Montgomery. And she sat there and she said, we said to her, how is it that you are living in Pharaoh's house? How is it that you walk up and down the streets here in the land of Pharaoh? How do you wake up and tell your children, Justice and Jeremiah, and God willing, she'll have another child, she's pregnant, and all of that. How are you doing it? And she said, oh, I have my faith. I have my faith that even though my people saw the worst of humanity, my faith tells me to sing a song to what's best in humanity. My faith. From last week's one side does not fit all. When we spoke about how slaves and the power of finding a voice, and it begins with a groan, with an exhale, with a sigh. From that, the Zohar says, from there to call, just being able to moan. The pentatonic scale, which is so much a part of Negro spirituals, was most likely just the groans and the melodic way of slaves finding meaning amidst horrific, unimaginable paradox. Can human beings be so evil? And so April said, it was my song, my prayer, my faith, my belief, not just my silence, but my ability to rise above it and sing in spite of it all. So this book that I bought at the museum, Standing in Need, of prayer, a celebration of black prayer. And this unbelievably beautiful spiritual, and the words that many, some of you know, but I had never heard this before and it so touched me. Maybe if anybody knows this, let me know and start, start singing it. Ain't my brother or my sister, but it's me, oh Lord. Anybody know? 
that's spiritual. Standing in the need of prayer. Ain't my brother or my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. God of our weary years and God of our silent tears. Thou hast brought us thus far on the way. Thou hast by thy might led us into the light. Keep us forever in the path, we pray. James Weldon Johnson. Bo El Paro. Bo knows. There are dark places in this world. There are places that evoke for us great mystery and great paradox and pain. And we as a people rose. And the capacity of those who have seen that banality to still sing their song inspires each and every one of us to work hard to dismantle systems that continue to oppress, repress, suppress. We need to sing. That's my raw sermon, everybody. I'm going to work harder on it, I promise. I'll polish it up. But for tonight, that's what I got. And Rabbi, you know, Chazabasia has a song about that Torah from Rav Nachman, so I invite all of you to please rise.